Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. My name is Luis Cabrera. I'm the co-convener of the Griffith Asia Institute Seminar Series with Stephen Fung. And we're very pleased to welcome today an eminent political theorist from across the river, uh, Dr. Richard Shapcott. And I've known Richard for a little while now. We're, um, we have a, a lively dialogue going about uh, cosmopolitan theory. I've found him a very nimble thinker and someone who's always got some interesting ideas. So I was very pleased that he could fit us into his schedule. <laughs> But uh, it's my great pleasure to turn it over to Richard and oh. um, look forward to Thanks. hearing what Thanks. you have to say. Thanks, Louis. Thank you, Griffith. Thank you, um, the powers that be, for inviting me over here. It's nice to come over. We don't come over enough from UQ, so it's good to get over here. Okay, so I'm going to begin with a couple of uh, caveats. The first is this paper is coming out. And hopefully it'll be out by the end of the year in the European Journal of Political Theory. And... It's the sort of setting out of an ongoing, first stage of an ongoing research project. So in that context, I'm very keen to hear responses to it in terms of a project, in terms of what sort of things people from outside my particular area might want to think that I need to look at, that I haven't thought about. Um, In particular, those of you who work in, who have regional knowledge, knowledge of particular countries in the region and of their political ideologies and the political theory. It's as much an invitation to get uh, input on those points rather than sort of interrogation of my overall project, uh, logic of my argument, etc, etc. So, can I ask a question just to help me decide how much of my paper to talk about what? If I talk about cosmopolitan political theory, uh, people reasonably would... The, People need some a brief explanation of what I mean by that. Yes, couple. Yes, okay, that's good. That helps me get going. Ian, Renee, I'm surprised you guys didn't. that one. Okay, so the paper addresses two audiences, and I'm trying to bring these two audiences into dialogue, uh, engagement with each other, and. To, to some extent, hitch their wagons of these two together. The first is cosmopolitan political theory. The other is comparative political theory. So, by cosmopolitan political theory, I'm engaged with a whole variety of approaches that are concerned with how to translate the moral cosmopolitan position that all human beings should be treated as ends in themselves, having equal moral standing, into political practices and structures and policies. That's putting it simply, how do we translate that into politics rather than a matter of personal morality? And there's now a vast literature on this, lots of different approaches. And with comparative political theory, I'm referring to a relatively recent move in political theory to decenter the Western canon, to broaden out the terms of discourse of political theory, to include effectively non-Western thinkers. That's the simplest way I can put it. What that actually means and what that what actually how it should be done is a matter of some debate amongst the comparative political theorists, uh, and I'll say a little bit about that in the paper. So. 
core argument that I want to make is that these two approaches have a lot to say to each other, but beyond that also, that in fact I think they're, I think they're both necessary for each other. I think that cosmopolitanism requires comparative political theory and that comparative political theory maybe not requires cosmopolitanism, but I certainly think it's inherently cosmopolitan in some sense. And therefore, it needs to look at this tradition uh, more, more closely. In particular, I make two claims that cosmopolitanism as a concern with uni moral, uni moral universalism and its political expressions has a concern with the ways in which practices of inclusion and exclusion are justified and carried out. And in particular, I'm concerned with cosmopolitanism as focusing on the idea of permissible and impermissible harms. The so the core part of the argument is that this aspect of cosmopolitan political thought uh, can benefit comparative political theory. That you can do comparative political theory with these questions in mind, that this will generate more interesting insights, more focused insights from comparative political theory. So, I'll do a brief overview of what comparative political theory is, what the main claims of it is, and why, which includes why this, the case I'm making is not always immediately obvious. Comparative political theory is in some ways the, the product, the brainchild of well, one person in particular, Fred Dalmeyer, who sort of sponsored it as a field um, and edited a book series and set out some big scoping pieces on the idea of comparative political theory very much coming from the position that it should be a decentering of the canon of political thought, including engaging with non-Western political theory on its own terms, and not just in terms of what does Western political theory say, and with, with a moral slash democratic impulse to have the debate about political theory include as many voices as possible. So it's a very inclusive gesture. Dalmai's claim is that we live after Babel, after the scattering of languages and peoples, and that this should be reflected in the canons of political theory, especially in this globalised age. The major critique is that Western political theory, even if just by omission, assumes that the only insightful and important political theory occurs within the West and within the Western tradition. It implies that Western canon is the only source of political wisdom and should define the terms of reflection. He argues that political theorising has instead to take seriously the diversity and multiplicity of languages, customs, cultural traditions that make up contemporary political communities around the world, often within one any given state but also certainly globally. All very well and good. Andrew March, in 2009, published a piece which was engaged with critical, uh, com uh, comparative political theory, which I'm going to call CPT from now on. And he argues, well, this is all very well and good, but there's not a sufficient methodological justification for what comparative political theory can bring and how it should be done, what sort of method, what sort of approach should, should be taken he argues in particular, he identifies uh, a dilemma within much com 
comparative political theory thought. That is, it, I'm quoting here, it achieves, it wants to be relevant, which it achieves by directing itself to important normative disputes. But when the task is bringing to light poorly understood moral perspectives on normative disputes that oppose dominant Western views, comparative political theory is often not quite sure what to say. After describing the contours of the differences between certain Western views and certain non-Western views, and noting that one, one cannot assume the non-Western ones to be misguided, reactionary or stagnant, comparative political theory often does not know where to go with its dialogue. In other words, I take March to be saying comparative political theory is quite good at bringing out differences, perhaps. It's also quite... A lot of it, actually, if you look at it, is not actually that comparative. A lot of it is sort of Verstein-type approaches. Let's go and understand what these people think they say think they're saying, let's go and look at them in their little silo, so we go and look at Chinese political thought, um, Confucian political thought as a sort of, and try to explain it or interpret it for non-Chinese, non-Confucian people, and kind of leave it there. Or alternatively, others have said, you know, we need to understand that when Islam rejects certain aspects of modernity or certain aspects of Western liberalism, there's X, Y, Z traditions of thought of how of where this sits, and it's not simply to be written off as as much as reactionary or whatever. But there are actual reasons that make sense within the context of West of Islamic political thought and its history. So there is a political thought in history there that we should take seriously when seeking to understand it. What March is getting at, though, is that CPT approaches its task as one of contrasting, but not engaging in substantive cross-cultural evaluation or, if you like, prescriptive, normative political theory that seeks to not only understand what's being said but actually evaluate it on the one hand but also even set up, uh, formulate possible normative ideals or values so in the manner of ideal theory or in the manner of non-ideal theory but in the manner of political theory that has a constructive task rather than just an uh, interpretive hermeneutic one. So March argues that critic, uh, CPT should undertake first-order evaluation of the implication of the contestations of norms, values and principles between distinct coherent doctrines of thought. It is to be conceived of as justificatory compar comparative political theory. That is, engage in inquiring into how different traditions justify their different principles and how or whether they might, that justification might translate or not across political traditions or in certain political circumstances. So this view would suggest that CPT should be concerned with whether and how fundamental doctrines, the justificatory strategies may or may not limit the capacities of practical consensus. Is it possible that there will we will find incommensurable views at the core, at the base of these theories, or will we actually find avenues that may open up consensus there? What I take March as getting at is that the comparative political theory needs to, therefore, address substantive questions of political theory. Seek to think about how to 
different compar different approaches address substantive questions of political theory? How can we bring it into contrast on each other? And if needs be, take an evaluative stance on different types of responses that it comes up. He draws a nice parallel. He says we can we can even do if you like comparative political theory within the West, if you like, between, for instance, Christians and secularists, when we look at the debates, the differences about their position on gay marriage or abortion or something like that, in order to engage in debate about them, we really need to look at the fundamental justificatory strategies between them, whether they, rather than sort of what pragmatic consensus we can come at, but what are the fundamental differences at view in order to understand where these different perspectives come from and what uh, reconciliation there might be. So justificatory comparison is necessary both in understanding others but also in ascertaining what types of arguments might work or count against others' arguments, both on their terms and ours, and what types will not. So he argues exploring the normative implications for us of principle value conflict is an appropriate task of engaged political theory and could be made the centrepiece of the comparative political theory project. So, my argument is that this, is, this could take place, this type of comparative approach could take place under the umbrella, within the horizon of cosmopolitan political theorising. Marsh also argues the strongest warrant for comparative political theory is that there are normative contestations of proposals for terms of social cooperation affecting adherence of the doctrines and traditions that constitute those contestations. In other words, translating this into the cosmopolitan agenda, there are normatively informed proposals for world order, for international finance regulation, for distributive justice, for the conduct of war, that affect potentially everybody on the planet, no matter where they're situated, what traditions of thought they may come to the table with on these questions. Therefore, this is the sort of venue in which comparative political theory should be undertaken in the light of these sorts of proposals for social for the terms of social cooperation. Okay, so now, interestingly enough, very little has been said about comparative political theory and cosmopolitanism. There's probably two writers that I could identify who said the most. Uh, that is Fred Dalmeyer, and the other is uh, Farah Godrej, uh, who I think is at University of Southern California. She might be at Berkeley. For the most part, most that I've seen, most comparative political theorists aren't saying a lot of substandard stuff and haven't really engaged with the debates about what cosmopolitanism might be. They may have, there's a bit more stuff about human rights. If we look through the, at, through the lens of human rights, there's quite a lot being written about you know, cultural diversity and cross-cultural justifications for human rights. And some great scholarship on those questions, but not in the more general sense of cosmopolitanism. So, normative cosmopolitanism, political cosmopolitanism, has become a very broad church in, in the last couple of decades. It involves everything from those who seek to instantiate human rights into the international order to those like we're here arguing for a transformation of world order along world government lines to those like myself who uh, have more recently begun to identify the role of the state as a potential agent of cosmopolitan action. Louis <laughs> um, shaking his head. Um, and looking for more along the lines of how do we get there from here? In relation to comparative political theory, then, cosmopolitanism generally 
has a political and theoretical task of justifying a universalism, both of scope of moral inclusion, who is included in the moral realm, and of justifying the particular content of the vision of what the moral realm should be. So cosmopolitan political thought has two dimensions relevant to CPT. The basis of its justification for universalism and the second is the content of that universalism. Now the predisposition of CPT, especially in the forms put forward by um, Dalma and Godrich, seems to be a certain deep problematising of the justification of moral universalism. It's largely associated with many, many people's views with very, very particular liberal political theory, especially in the work of Rawls and Rawlsians, but not exclusively them. Also, human rights discourse is often associated with certain forms of political liberalism. And so, cosmopolitanism is often thrown out with the, with the baby, with the bathwater of liberalism, uh, tarred with the same brush, and often justifiably so. So, comparative political theory is very, very concerned to question liberalism's underlying sense of its own universality. That the universalism of liberalism can apply unproblematically. So, many versions of cosmopolitanism have also relied upon universalism of both scope and justification, and they're including a claim to some sort of transcultural validity or impartiality. And this process, is, this part, this claim has been subject to scepticism for almost as long as cosmopolitanism has been around. Uh, that cosmopolitanism is not universal, but it's really the expression of a very particular political and cultural history, a political project, one that begins and resides largely in, in the West, and in particular in Western liberalism and Enlightenment tradition. The CPT response to cosmopolitanism has been largely that no form of political theory can make claim for universality without including non-Western perspectives from the ground up, so to speak. Cosmopolitanism remains for the most part an internal Western discussion that privileges the Western experience as though it was self-evident that other resources need not be consulted. It seems, uh, as Godrich says, it seems odd arbitrarily to privilege ideas drawn from the Western experience and then claim that they apply elsewhere with no examination of what other traditions have to offer and that a truly cosmopolitan theory would be one in which we bring the idea of, we might bring the idea of Gandhi or Confucius to bear on our discussion of freedom or justice in the same way that we would use Rawls or Marx, Hobbes, Nozick, whatever. So this first task is to simply broaden the horizon of cosmopolitan political theory to make it more inclusive, to move towards a more genuine universalism beyond the spurious universality claimed by the Western canon. And I can think this, from, from my view, this argument has the most bite when we look at discussions, certain discussions about the nature of global distributive justice. This, is, this, this debate has shifted recently, but certainly for a while it was really dominated by what the question of whether Rawls's theory could be applied to the globe. That rules and solve the question of justice. Justice could then be applied, could and should be applied globally. That was kind of the implication of some of the earlier writers. Um, and all the problems were really about internal problems within Rawls's conception of justice and had almost nothing to say about what the rest of the world might think about this. 
whether or not it would be legitimate to apply this standard to those who come from different political traditions, given that Rawls himself acknowledged the contextualisation of his own theory. So the thrust of people like Godrej and Dalmai's work lies in the epistemic challenge of bringing new discourses to the table. If the most important questions of contemporary political philosophy are themselves of a global nature, how could a planetary political philosophy proceed except by including a planet's worth of theoretical perspectives? It's a very straightforward line of argument. But again, within these arguments, insofar as Godrej and Dalmai have spoken about cosmopolitanism, that's as far as their agenda goes. Let's just bring in other thinkers and engage with them. And as far as it goes, that's a perfectly legitimate and much-needed answer, solution. But both of them remain, I think, suggestive and indeterminate because they stay largely at the methodological level. And Godrej, in particular, in her book Cosmopolitan Political Thought, seems to imply an ambivalence towards any substantive arguments and in favour of a, a simply of a process of engagement and disruption. Part of that is evaluation and assessment, but part of it is simply understanding and dis- being disruptive. That cosmopolitanism comes in the act of having one's view challenged from outside uh, and broadening one's horizon. The view I'm much sympathetic towards, but it's unclear whether they, she and or Dalmar, how, how far they think we can go in terms of actually engaging with a political theory that actually does work uh, about what sort of forms of order and rules are justifiable. Fred Dalai is also in this line. He is a bit harder to pin down at times, but in some places he seems pretty sceptical of anything like a, to quote, a uniform legal and political structure hegemonically controlling the world. Cosmopolitanism can only mean a shared aspiration nurtured and negotiated among local or national differences. So this seems to be a retreat to sort of some sort of virtue ethics maybe, some sort of change of orientation and attitude and openness, but not translating into political practice and political structures directly, in some forms. Okay, nonetheless, the, both of them adopt the model of a the sort of Gadamerian dialogue leading towards a fusion of horizons as the model of conversation between different traditions as a way, because crucially in this view... And we can compare it with something like a Rawlsian overlapping consensus. The point here is to engage with the other as a possible bearer of truth. So we read Confucius not purely as a sort of Orientalist, as a, what's this interesting other fellow got to say, but actually as a possible someone from whom we might actually learn something, we might actually have something to contribute to whatever common project we might have, and we would hope that the same might be said the other way. And the problem has been that the dialogue's all gone one way rather than the other from the West's point of view, to some extent. So they've both agreed upon that, and I'm in agreement with them as well and have written on that before. Okay, so again, to sum up this part of the argument, the the crucial question I raise to both of those authors and to CPT generally is, well, this is all very well and good, but it seems to vacate the field of political theory to simply this task of some form of mutual dialogue and understanding, but not oriented towards actually, you know, how would we think about global justice as something other than, well, kind of a vague, nice way of talking to each other. Does it? Can we talk about just global distributive justice from the perspective of a 
comparative political theorist. What would comparative political theory have to say about that? So my argument then is that I think this problem, this dilemma that March points out, and that I think has been present in comparative political theory, can be addressed by using the work of uh, cosmopolitanism, in particular formed by Andrew Linklater's emphasis on practices of inclusion and exclusion and practices of harm and non-harm. Linklater's central question has, always, has been for a long time how to promote universality, which respects difference, and how to do so without encouraging and unleashing extreme particularism. How do we mediate between these two needs? The standing of human beings as individuals, as human beings, and the recognition that human beings as human beings exist in particular cultural contexts. So for Linklater, the problem of community in cosmopolitanism revolves around identifying those principles of inclusion most likely to secure universal consent while recognising and including difference. I think Linklater is correct in suggesting that looking at cosmopolitanism as a question to form different ways in which inclusion and inclusion take place opens up the cosmopolitan agenda and broadens the focus of what cosmopolitanism means to open the possibility of different ways, different forms of justification for inclusion and exclusion. So instead of asking what is the content of global justice or are human rights universal, we ask to identify cosmopolitanism with the task of defending universalism understood in terms of the range of moral consideration, i.e. who is considered a moral subject of moral concern. So the way to think about this clearly is if we look at the history, the history of the West and its engagement with others, we see that as a process whereby the ways in which other, other people are considered to be people, to have moral standing, is one in which that has changed over time, which in a more progressive interpretation that, has, that uh, circle of inclusion has got broader and deeper, if you like. Uh, the bar has been set um, more appropriately uh, over time. The question of what form consider consideration, moral consideration should take and how it might inform practice, what it consists of, forms the second part of the normative project. The first was how do we defend universalism, and the second is what might it look like. Linklater's more recent work has defended the idea of a cosmopolitan harm principle. It provides a venue for making cosmopolitan thought more epistemically pluralist because it's not based on any particular substantive value, but rather a framework in which these values are discussed, a framework focused on the ways and types of harm which human beings can do to each other. So the first task, then, of a comparative cosmopolitanism would require an investigation into how any given thought or tradition approaches the question of the scope of human moral considerability consideration. This includes the scope of potential application, to which group of humans might this particular moral political thought apply? Does it apply differently to other groups of people? Are there substantive differences clearly articulated between who to whom it is applied, or is it implicit in our other aspects of the political thought? So a CPT approach to this question would build upon existing traditions of thought in order to establish opportunities and obstacles facing potential transcultural theoretical consensus on the moral standing of people anywhere. What are the obstacles that may or may, ex may not exist in Islam, in Confucian thought, in Buddhist thought, in, what a better term, African indigenous thought, for instance? 
because the fundamental questions of cosmopolitanism is how do we how do we treat people as having moral standing, regardless of who they are or where they come from. We can't rule anybody else out. So the question is, how do different political theories engage with that question? What is their scope of moral consideration? So understanding the prospects of inclusion require asking whether some traditions may understand the scope of their applicability to be universal or particular. Some may draw stark distinctions between insiders and outsiders, between compatriots non-compatriots, between believers and non-believers. We know that Islam distinguishes between the Dar al-Islam and the Dar al-Hab, the realm of peace, the realm of war, the outside realm. Does this, is this, is this a, are these points on a spectrum or are they, is this a clear moral divide? Now, Islam, we know, is not a, a monological tradition but has a great variety of thought there. Um, but it, those types of questions, how and what moral standing is given to people according to different reasons. Does Confucian moral thought make any relevant distinctions between different categories of human beings, including those within its own political community and those outside? How does Hindu political thought, with its hierarchical conception of society, traditional Hindu thought, think about non-Hindus and others? Is this an obstacle, a barrier to universalism? Uh, is it consistent with cosmopolitanism or inconsistent with cosmopolitanism? For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.